This is episode number 509 with Parinaz Sobani, Head of Machine Learning and Applied Research at Georgian. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a Chief Data Scientist and best-selling author on Deep Learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, we're joined by the game-changing machine learning practitioner and AI expert, Parinaz Sobani. Parinaz is head of machine learning and applied research at Georgian a financial technology company that is the largest private investment fund in Canada. They make venture capital and private equity investments. Georgian leverages data and machine learning not only to drive their investment decisions, but revolutionarily to provide the companies they invest in with top-tier AI experts to collaborate on high-impact projects. This isn't consulting. It's a service. It's a perk provided by Georgian to the 40-odd companies in its investment portfolio, each of which are themselves well-funded, high-growth tech startups in a broad range of industries, from insurance to law to real estate and dozens more. In today's episode, Parinaz details how Georgian's innovative AI special ops approach works with several fascinating real-life examples. In addition, she fills us in on the tools and techniques her team leverages, with a particular focus on efficient and powerful techniques that combine transformer-based models of natural language with transfer learning. We talk about what she looks for in the data scientists and machine learning engineers she hires. We talk about the ethics of AI, such as environmental and sociodemographic considerations. And we dig into Parinaz's academic research. She holds a PhD in AI from the University of Ottawa, where she specialized in natural language processing. Today's episode is somewhat technical, so may appeal especially to practicing data scientists, but we put special effort into breaking down technical sections so that hopefully anyone can get the gist and learn a lot. Today's episode will also appeal greatly to anyone interested in accelerating the impact tech startups can have by augmenting their core team with external AI specialists. All right, you excited for this episode? Let's get to it. Arinaz, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I am delighted to have you here. You're such an interesting person, and I can't wait to dig into the work you're doing now, the work you've done in the past. It's all so fascinating. Parinaz, tell us, where in the world are you calling in from today? Hi, John. Uh, nice to meet you, and thanks for having me. I'm calling from Toronto. Yeah, I, uh, we, we talked about this briefly just before we started recording. So I was born and raised in Toronto and or as people in the rest of the world pronounce Toronto, uh, uh, the most populous city in Canada. And I hadn't been here in a couple of years because of the pandemic. I couldn't travel from New York to Canada, but the borders opened up a little. We're, we're filming early September and the borders opened up a couple of weeks ago, I was able to finally come home and visit my family in Canada. And so I'm actually, I'm like an hour drive away from you in Waterloo. And had we coordinated better, we could have shot in person. That would have been fun. 
Yeah, definitely. I wish we have done it, but that's okay. Yeah. We all got used it's to all it. It's all right. We, we got used to doing everything. Yeah. Exactly. And um, yeah, it doesn't take away from what is going to be an incredible episode. Uh, so I know you through Maureen Tessier. So Dr. Tessier was on episode 479, uh, an extremely interesting episode. Uh, we talked about her, her work in industry. We also talked about her PhD research, which is similar to what we're going to end up doing with you on this episode today, Parnas. Um, so I know Maureen from being in New York from, I used to run a, I guess I still run, but because of the pandemic, I haven't been doing it, this deep learning study group. And Maureen was a regular contributor. She did some presentations there. She was pretty much always attending and a really valuable contributor to this group. She's somebody I respect so much. And so when after the program, she said, I've got this friend, Parinaz, that you've got to speak to. I think she'd be a great guest on the show. She sent me over your profile. I checked you out online and I was like, absolutely, right away. I've got to have Parinaz on the show. So how do you know Maureen? That's, that's actually very interesting because it's also related to what I'm doing right now. I uh, ah. work and where, yeah, do you, do you want me... Do you want me to tell you a little bit about where I am, what I do, and how? Yeah, exactly. Play? I mean, we might as well. We were gonna get to it at some point anyway. So let us know. Yeah, tell us about yeah. where you work and what you're doing. Of course, I work for Georgian, and we are a fintech company disrupting investment. So we invest in B two B SaaS companies. We are more like later stage investor, normally Series B C. And Maureen used to work for one of our companies, Rianomi, and that's how we met. So like Rianomi is one of the examples that we have around 30, 40 other uh, startup companies in our portfolio. And uh, I'm head of machine learning and applied research, which is kind of interesting because I don't have investment background and I'm definitely not working on the investment world. So mm -hmm. our team and our main differentiation is about how we help our companies post-investment and what's our value add. Our value add is around the R&D team or applied research team that we have. And uh, we help our companies really to accelerate their growth. But how? It's mainly around how we can help them to have product differentiation by using cutting-edge technologies. So if you think about like, Amazons or Microsoft or Google of the world, they all have access to talent. They all have access to those research labs and that's how they can afford innovation and research. Normally for startups, it's not affordable. So that's my and wow. our team responsibility to really stay pretty much up-to-date what's going on, what is relevant, what's not relevant and how our companies can leverage these technologies to really solve the problems at scale or have some sort of product differentiation in their competitive markets. That is so cool. So, so Georgian is the name of the company, which I'd love to know. Do you know why it's called Georgian? Why it's called Georgian? Yeah, because we are very close to Georgian Bay. So uh, uh, I guess our funders love Georgian Bay, and it's definitely one of the most beautiful parts of Ontario. So guess that's why yeah. it's Georgian. That's true. It is. It's about a two-hour drive north of Toronto. And then all of a sudden you're in this incredible cottage country with endless lakes. Um, lots of people have islands that you can only, that they, they'll have a cottage on an island that you can only get to by boat 
or like hover plane, maybe even. <laughs> it's a fancy <laughs> way. Um, I couldn't agree more. It's a, a lot of Hollywood celebrities will buy property around Georgian Bay um, and that kind of area because it's some of the most beautiful uh, place you yeah, can be. Yeah, beaches. Yeah, exactly. Beaches in, in Ontario. So, yeah, that's how they call it Georgian. It's been, we've been around for, for the last 13 years and uh, we are the biggest private fund in Canada right now. But of course, really? we are the most proud of the we are the most proud of our differentiation and our disruption in this industry. So we also use machine learning AI and data science to automate and augment our investment processes. And that's how we also started our journey to be more analytics, to be more ML and data driven company. And then we decided why not using these technologies and why not uh, applying the same expertise and helping our companies as well. Wow, okay, so this is super cool. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science. Yes, our online membership platform for transitioning into data science and the namesake of the podcast itself. In the Super Data Science platform, we recently launched our new 99-day data scientist study plan, a cheat sheet with week-by-week -week instructions to get you started as a data scientist in as few as 15 weeks. Each week, you complete tasks in four categories. The first is Super Data Science courses to become familiar with the technical foundations of data science. The second is hands-on projects to fill up your portfolio and showcase your knowledge in your job applications. The third is a career toolkit with actions to help you stand out in your job hunting. And the fourth is additional curated resources such as articles, books, and podcasts to expand your learning and stay up to date. To devise this curriculum, we sat down with some of the best data scientists as well as many of our most successful students and came up with the ideal 99-day data scientist study plan to teach you everything you need to succeed so you can skip the planning and simply focus on learning. We believe the program can be completed in 99 days, and we challenge you to do it. Are you ready? Go to superdatascience.com challenge, download the 99-day study plan, and use it with your Super Data Science subscription to get started as a data scientist in under 100 days. And now, let's get back to this amazing episode. So th that first, I mean, the part that you just told me, that's kind of like the obvious part to me. And that's the part that I would have guessed. If you told me Georgian is the biggest private fund in Canada and we have people here who are experts in AI and machine learning, the obvious thing to me would be like, okay, what that team does is it helps Georgian figure out where to invest. The second part, which was actually the first part you told me, <laughs> but the second piece where your AI ML teams actually augment the uh, the companies that you invest in and allow them to have this uh, differentiation, this kind of cutting edge capabilities through applied AI research, that's amazing. And I've never heard of anyone doing that before. Now seems kind of obvious now that you've mentioned it. I guess that takes, I mean, that takes a lot of, it takes a lot of investment on Georgian's part because people who are AI ML experts like you are not cheap. And so to even have a team in house helping with investments, that's kind of expensive. But then to say, we're gonna go a step further and have an even bigger team so that we can help our portfolio, that um, that takes, I imagine in the beginning, before that was a proven strategy, that, that takes guts. Um, though I'm not surprised that it has worked out as a proven strategy. That's, you're right. And it's, you're right. We were 
the very first VC who had like a hands-on R&D applied research team. That's the case. Like it wasn't, it was, it was, there was nobody else to look after and look into. Uh, but, and it was a journey. It was like lots of experimentation, figuring out. And um, I was the first machine learning hire. So I, and I, wow. I'm, I'm so proud of our journey and uh, what we achieved. So I started and I was still very hands-on. I love code. I love to see data. I love to play with data. And and I started to have like some kind of like advisory meetings and calls and relationship with our companies. And I was like, it's impossible. I need data. Give me data. And then we started right. to experiment with this new model of like how we can be more hands-on, how we can get closer and closer to the code and what they build. And uh, it worked. It's actually like maybe not the, in the first or second project because we failed a few times to really figure out that it's more about collaboration. We are not like a consultancy shop out there. We have a very special mm-hmm. relationship with our companies. We don't charge our companies. And it's all about uh, collaboration, partnership, and augmenting and even educating and up-leveling their teams, which is very special. Nobody else is willing to 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 teach you all these secret sauce because they want to keep charging you or right. so yeah so that's why it's been a great journey working very closely with startup companies also has been very rewarding for me because i feel it's very impactful uh, these startup companies are solving very very interesting problems and often they don't have access to the right talent or they can't even afford the right talent to to really solve them using more innovation using more cutting edge technologies, so that's that's why I'm so I'm so excited for the role and for what we are doing. That is so cool, and I can imagine that it is exciting and getting to work on all these diverse problems and getting to work alongside people like Maureen. If that's kind of if that's your typical counterpart, if you're dealing like over the course of your week with various Maureens at various mm-hmm. high-growth startup companies, all tackling different exciting problems. Wow, that is really an exciting role, Parinaz. I am super jealous. Mm-hmm. Don't You don't yeah. need to tell anyone, but I'm so jealous. Um, so, all right, so on that note, are there any particular use cases that you'd like to talk about that are interesting? Yeah, I, so over time, we try to tailor our offerings for companies in different stages of their maturity. So mm-hmm. ideally, we want to work with more advanced companies. We want to also make our, all our companies pretty much advanced in the area of machine learning data science, but they might be earlier. So how we can really help them to build a team? How do we can really help them to identify opportunities, have some strategies, product strategies? And then my, my favorite part and our team favorite part is what we call hackathon or deep engagements where we oh. really go very, very deep. We work for a few weeks or a few months or a few quarters with our companies and really help them to deliver uh, and execute on the plan and accelerate that kind of execution. So maybe I can give you an example. We, one of our companies, Tractable, is a computer vision company. They are in the auto insurance market, enabling uh, insurance companies to really augment and automate processes and really make it easier for every single one of us who had accidents. So 
if you have an accident, normally it's a very long and tedious process. You have to call your insurance many times and then the body shop and getting the receipts. So it's, it's a very tedious uh, process. How we can really accelerate and also automate and augment the process as much as possible. So uh, if maybe they are kind of... Uh, defining a new process which is mainly about like you're taking a few pictures of your car and then sending it over they're going to process those images and they're going to give you an estimate of how much the insurance needs to pay and then it's all about the automation of like kind of like insurance body shop and you as someone who had an accident Uh, they are moving to new markets to new problems check out their website and they are also hiring they're always hiring for best talents they are uh, nice. hiring in europe and can in us and europe the so, company was called tractable tractable yeah like t-r-a-c-t-a-b-l-e T- tractable t-r-a-c-t-a-b-l-e and uh so tractable they are uh interested in moving to new markets imagine that and for example, their customer base mostly in APAC or Europe, and now they are considering to moving to, to North America. And most of these models that they already built uh, not going to perform really well in the new market, in the ge- new geographic locations, because the repair replace kind of uh, processes are different from one geographic location to another geographic location. And also the car types and models, they are also very different. So that's why it's a it's a problem because it can delay onboarding new customers and it can delay the revenue that come, can come from these customers. It's also not ideal for their customers. So really how we can solve this problem using some sort of machine learning and mainly transfer learning techniques because it's not mm. going to be the case that Everything else that they build or all the data they've collected so far is completely irrelevant. It's just a matter of which of them is or uh, is relevant. So um, that's how it's more definitely tractable is one of the most advanced companies we have. But it was mostly around like really figuring out the latest research. And given that we already had some expertise in transfer learning, working with other companies in this area, mm-hmm. how we could help them to quickly come up with with techniques that can enable them to quickly onboard customers in new geographies. Uh, And of course, reduce the cost because it's also about the cost that you're gonna have as if you wanna build completely a new model from scratch and you need to collect lots of data and annotate and label lots Mm -hmm. of data. Beautiful, so let's take a moment to fill in what transfer learning is for listeners who aren't aware. So transfer learning, is where we take a model, typically a big model, that has already been pre-trained on a lot of data, and then we um, we fine-tune the model weights to some specific data set that is highly relevant to the client. So I don't know, you, you can probably dig into some uh, particular details, obviously without going into uh, anything proprietary, but so a common thing uh, that a company would do in a computer vision case, like maybe Intractable's case, you can take a model like AlexNet, which is this uh, deep learning model that is specialized in kind of general machine vision problems. It's been around for almost a decade now. And there's this data set called the ImageNet data set that has tens of millions of images that are labeled. Um, so some of those images, it says this is a car. Other ones, it says this is a cat. 
And those, those labels are for tens of thousands of different categories. So you can train AlexNet to be generally good at vision tasks by training it on the ImageNet dataset, just as an example. And then you can take that giant machine vision model architecture that's, ha that's had the advantage of all of these, of all this diverse training images, and then fine tune it to some specific problem. And that is called transfer learning. So I don't know if there's anything, if there's any more detail you want to go into there, Paranaz, related to, to Tractable. Yeah, like we also published a few blog posts uh, about this project. So I encourage oh, everyone nice. to check them out. But uh, what we also used was what we call ensemble learning. And it's also about, okay, you have these models and it's much more complicated than a single model because you have models for each part of the car. You have models for the purple place, paint, or I don't know, there are all these kinds of things that can happen in the body shop. And, um, and then it's also about object detection, really figuring out which part of the car it is. And it's really the combination of many models. And it's also about... You have these models for different geographic locations, uh, how you can really combine at model level as well. So what you mentioned is like really one of the ways we, we, we tried and we got uh, some improvements from that. The other ways is thinking about how we can smartly combine these models uh, or features or getting their, their predictions into coming like or stack modeling is like combining all these models in a stack modeling way. But um, it worked very well. And uh that's why it's not, there is no straightforward approach mm -hmm. to solve the problem. It's first of, of all, really digging in into the problem, really understanding their current uh, stack and the current process, the current uh, workflow, and then understanding what they have, what they have collected, and then digging into the research and really figuring out what's relevant to their problem, trying and experimenting. That's why it takes time. And that's oh, why sure. most of the time startups, they don't afford because they are really under the pressure of delivering. Yep. So, um, so I'll get back to that kind of like practical applied thing that you just mentioned in one second. But so that what you were talking about there in general, when you, when you opened up that discussion, you were talking about ensemble learning, which um, is just uh, the, the word ensemble in French is together. And so it's this idea of having models work together and so you mentioned one way you could be stacking models together. Um, so the output from one becomes the input to another. So you could have multiple models creating inputs for a model downstream. So we could stack them in that way. Or even at the same level in a stack of models, you could have multiple different approaches that combine their results and get results that are better than any individual model in that layer of the stack on its own. It sounds super cool and it does definitely sound complicated. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that you sometimes need to be working for months or quarters on these deep dive hackathons with your clients to get great results. Because I imagine even like, the, the kinds of the data set sizes could be so big uh, oh, yeah. that even just, yeah, sharing yeah. the data just at first um, and then kind of really digging into their problem and figuring out how all the different parts that you need in the stack are going to work together. It sounds really fun. It must be nice um, to be able to to get that done and see that the uh, that this portfolio company of yours can move forward and have this big differentiating aspect. Um, and so on that note, uh, as you mentioned right at the end of the last time that I let you speak, I've not been speaking for so long, but uh, the last thing that you said when you were last speaking 
was talking about this this idea of how startups are are so pressed. You know, you have like startups often they're not profitable. So I'm sure some of your companies in your portfolio, um, some of them probably are profitable, but some probably aren't. And when you're not profitable, there's this amazingly intense pressure to be delivering on on R&D that generates revenue. And this can be tough when you're talking about the kind of problem that you described, ensembles of models, huge data sets, um, all these different layers of the stack, all of which need to be functional. And all of those pieces need to be in place maybe before the whole thing can generate any revenue. So that puts a lot of pressure on a small startup's um, R&D function. And so I can see the value in having this, um, in having you guys as the investment company understanding that process and being able to contribute resources, it's it's so cool. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you're 100% right. It's all about they are always under resources. They have to keep delivering and growing. And we know well, most of all markets are so competitive. Every single day there is a new feature, there's a new product that your competitor has. And now you have, there is a pressure on you to also Mm-hmm. Build the similar products, get get sim- build similar functionalities. So uh, definitely, so much pressure on teams to deliver. And then we, at the other side of the spectrum, we have these problems that they are definitely high value. We normally build ROI cases for every project we we work on because. We are, of course, technologists, but <laughs> we have to be super pragmatic yeah. and practical because we have also a pretty small team and we have to help more than 40 companies. So we've normally wow. built our ROI models and we normally make sure that we really going to work on the projects that can move the needle at the business level. But at the same time, they are high risk. That's a kind of like, I guess, right. common sense. Most of the time, these high value projects, they are also high risk. And that's why, because of the risk level, sometimes our companies deprioritize these these types of projects. Mm-hmm. Or they are looking for someone who has better understanding or has some sort of expertise to, again, to risk the project or even tell them, is it feasible, is it not feasible? Or how in a very short period of time we can study the feasibility. Totally, yeah, that's another really great use case. That can even, I'm I'm sure there end up being circumstances there where you can help them figure out what to prioritize, what might be feasible, how risky things are. If there's 40 companies in Georgian's portfolio, no doubt there will be circumstances where you have to say, we can't take the time to get involved in this multi-month project with two people from our team. But, uh, you know, here's kind of, you can point them in the right direction um, and and kind of help them out with how feasible things are. Because no doubt um, amongst those 40 companies, some of them probably do have amazing machine learning leaders who can kind of do that for themselves, like Maureen. But no doubt there's some others where they don't have that much in-house expertise. Maybe they have an engineering team, but haven't yet hired data scientists. And so they think, well, I think there's this opportunity for a model, but I don't really have modeling experience and they can come to you. Yeah, you are right. It's, there are several factors when we are prioritizing the projects. One of them and what what one of them is what we call commonality or reusability. So if there is a problem that they can help you with, but there is four other companies that they can leverage the similar technologies, similar uh, code, then it's what that, then it's a win-win for all 
four of you. And of course, we don't invest in a competitive companies. So none of our companies are competitors. So that's why uh, we have this community of ML and data science teams that we can help them to work together, work with us, and we can be that bridge to help them fill those gaps and knowledge to trans- transfer the knowledge. Uh, so uh, that's why that's been one of our kind of top priorities to so always think about commonalities, think about reusability and scaling because uh, in a venture capital world, there is no value to double your double your team every year or like we don't uh, measure the growth by the number of people we have in our organization. So it's always about how you can be more efficient, how you can scale, how you can uh, also make sure that you have this kind of community of companies that they get together and solve these types of hard problems. Cool. That's a whole other layer of this amazing model that Georgian has that I didn't know about and that is so cool. It's obvious now that you mention it, but hadn't occurred to me, is that by yeah having commonality, reusability, scalability of the work that you do, it, it can end up having this... Um, yeah, this effect for your whole community of portfolio companies. Man, yeah, that's, yeah, as I said, really obvious now that you mentioned it, really powerful mm-hmm. and really cool. Yeah, yeah, I told you, nobody else has done it before. And then it was a few iterations, but that's what's very, that's what's really unique about our culture that I'm, so, again, so proud of. That culture of experimentation, always trying to disrupt and challenge ourselves by what's the next things for us, how we can really deliver more value for our companies while staying very efficient, while having a lean team. Or we can think about like what we call a toolkit, which is more like a reusable codes and reusable code components that we can mm-hmm. use in the, multi- in the context of multiple projects. And there is, of course, like IP, and then there is all these legal aspects of it, how we can figure it out, how we can make it very transparent. Like that's why we also open source most of our toolkits. Why? Because then it's going to be very clean, kind of state for most of our companies, no matter if they are in our portfolio or not, that still they can use that kind because it's open source. There is no limitation in terms of the code they uh, we use in the context of the other projects. It's not easy. So it's like, it's very exciting, but then there are some, all these legal trust mm-hmm. issues that we were, mm-hmm. we had to deal with, but I think we are in a very good situation right now that we figure out most of these kinds of nuances. And now we have like a, open source toolkits, and it's also giving back to the community. So it's not only about our companies. If there is another startup company out there dealing with a similar problem on the resource, they can leverage our toolkits and open source libraries as well. Yeah, this sounds hugely powerful and impactful. I had a conversation. So in 2020, I piloted a podcast called the Artificial Neural Network News Network, A4N, and it was hosting Kirill Aramenko, who at the time was the host of the Super Data Science Podcast, it was having him as a guest on that A4N that led to uh, me getting to know Kirill really well and me ending up eventually becoming the host of this program. But back last year, I interviewed someone named Dr. Rasmus Rote, who is uh, in Berlin, and he created something called the AI Campus. And so this AI Campus, it's a similar, this kind of idea of having many companies that can leverage... Um, a common set of software libraries, like you said, a toolkit, um, so that companies working in different areas, so you know they have a healthcare machine vision company that's detecting tumors. They have another machine vision company that is um, 
building self-driving algorithms, self-driving car algorithms um, for car companies. And so two completely different use cases, their markets don't um, overlap, much like your portfolio companies don't aren't competitors, but these are two different machine vision companies and there's a lot of different things related to transfer learning ensemble models that are common. And so you can, you can accelerate the uh, self-driving car company through the research that's happening at the tumor detection company. So I totally understand what you're getting at. I think that that kind of approach is really rare. You're only the second person that's ever mentioned it to me, but I can imagine how it's so useful for your portfolio companies. So, speaking of toolkits, are there particular tools or approaches that you and your team, and maybe even your portfolio companies, in association with the portfolio companies, that you usually use? Very good question. So we normally try to to really stay on top of like open source community and really figuring mm -hmm. out what's what's coming out because especially in machine learning and data science, there are so many great open source libraries. So it's just really making sure you are aware of all happening there. Because for example, one of my favorite uh, is Hugging Face, and every single day, mm -hmm. I, maybe it's an exaggeration. Every single week, there is a new new models, new features, new functionalities mm -hmm. that are coming out of that team. Uh, we normally, of course, most of the people in machine learning community, they use Python and we scikit-learn for like more straightforward classic ML problems for more deep learning type of problems. Uh, we use TensorFlow, PyTorch, uh, Keras. Um, we are pretty flexible because we have to really adapt to what they have been using and our company's tech stock. Uh, but it's pretty standard right now. It's Python, most of the time TensorFlow, PyTorch, as it relates to more like deep learning techniques or hugging phase types of like more like open source libraries that you can build on top of that. Um, nice. Yeah, and we also open source, so. Oh, you open source some stuff your, yourself? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's we cool. also open source, yeah. Nice, and so, yeah, many of these uh, tools, these open source tools will be familiar to listeners Python, the most popular machine learning uh, language, period. Uh, and then within that, libraries like TensorFlow, PyTorch, and Keras that are highly flexible, that allow you to uh, quickly build deep learning models, particularly in the case of Keras. But then with TensorFlow and PyTorch, you can really get into the nitty gritty with any kind of machine learning model and do very um, subtle, unique things like your idea of stacked uh, models and ensembles with TensorFlow or PyTorch graphs, you can really um, have all of those pieces work together as part of one single um, computational graph. So super powerful. The, the tool that I want to talk about that I don't think we've mentioned on the show before, but is so cool is Hugging Face. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, you're, they are one of the coolest companies. I have a, a data scientist on my team, Grant. He is in love with Hugging Face. He talks about them all the time. Because as you say, it seems almost every day they are coming out with these like state-of-the-art things that they often open source and make available. And particularly this, going back to what we talked about earlier in the conversation with transfer learning, they make transfer learning so easy. So I don't know if there's anything more there that you want to dig into. Yeah, we have, we've, worked, um, we've worked with one of our companies, Disco. They are in a legal tech space, really helping lawyers any discovery uh, figuring out out of all these documents, I guess thousands mm -hmm. of documents that they have to 
uh, deal with and really finding the right materials, so finding what is even relevant, what's not relevant, what's junk, what is, what's going to help them with their case. Um, and it's it's a classification tagging problem, but uh, how you can really leverage pre-trained models, how you can really leverage uh, cross-matter data aggregation if it's if it's possible to really pre-train model and then of course you can fine-tune them or domain adaptation that was another piece that we've been thinking about and and we open source our kind of toolkit about around domain adaptation as well because okay you are dealing with these as you mentioned like it's, it's in the context of representation learning and transfer learning that yeah these pre-trained models are available for you but they've been trained on completely different genre or uh, topics, and it's really they they it, it's like a it's like a human that understands the common sense, but it's when it gets more technical or specialized, they have no idea. So mm-hmm. how you can really fine tune them and adapt them to your topic to your problem, um, and that's very unique. I guess that was very unique for one of our companies, Disco, and I think and now it's open source. You can find it in our website as well, or our, in our GitHub repository. Oh, cool. And you can also use it to really enable you to quickly uh, to adapt and fine tune these models for your own based on your own data and your problem. Oh, nice! So the thing that you open sourced uh, in collaboration with this portfolio company, Disco, um, fun name, uh, mm-hmm. is a tool that makes it easier to transfer learn from pre-trained models. Is that right? Yeah, it's it, exactly. Like if you, yeah, exactly. If one of you can take any of those pre-trained models, these these models are super big, super large. Uh, you definitely, even f- if no other reason, at least for environmental reasons, you don't want to train these big models by yourself. Right. Uh, right. But at the same time, you want to get utility out of them because they are very powerful. So really how we can take one of those off-the-shelf pre-trained models and Hugging Face normally open source most of these pre-trained models. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can try them. You can use take one of those pre-trained models and use it for any classification. I don't know, question answering, tagging problem. Just get it out of, it's very easy to use Hugging Face, for example. But then you might not get the similar utility if you have a very specific domain, for example, legal domain, which is very specific. It's very different from, for example, news or Wikipedia documents that these mm-hmm. big models has been trained on. Exactly. Uh, and then how we can really adapt it to your own domain and fine-tune it to really get more utility out of these pre-trained models. That is specialized, of course, for your, for your problem. Beautiful. So yeah, so to I'm going to try to say back to you and summarize what you just said, but it sounds, yeah, it, it sounds like something really useful for listeners here is so uh, Hugging Face allows you to out of the box, as Paranaz just said, make use of pre-trained models. But these pre-trained models are going to be pre-trained, like you said, on Wikipedia articles or news, or maybe a scrape of all of Google sometimes. And that's hugely general. And if you have some specific use case, like you're in the legal space, like um, Disco is, then you're going to need to to uh, to fine tune the model to to this new data set, um, this specialized data set. And so, very cool that you guys at Georgian have um, have open sourced some tools to make that process easier. We yeah, will so- try to find that. And yeah. Put it in the show notes. Sorry, I spoke over you. Go ahead. No, no, that's uh, that's. I think maybe um, 
one more point around, even if you don't want to use those pre-trained models, uh, you have enough data to actually train a BERT model. I guess that was the case for BERT mo- for, for DISCO as well. They have access to millions of millions of millions of these documents that they even don't need to use any pre-trained models. But still, uh, you have a new matter, you have a new case uh, that you don't have enough training data for that one. So definitely you can't afford to train a BERT model from scratch. Then how you can really like lever it's also in the context of transfer learning and data aggregation, cross customers, cross matter, whatever works for your case based on your data rights. if uh, if you can really train a model or if you have existing models that you have already trained them for another matter, for another customer, for another client, and then it's a slightly different from the, the new use case, from the new classification problem, how you can really tune it for your own, mm-hmm. uh, for the, this new use case. Uh, and definitely it's going to be data efficient because it doesn't need to, you don't need to have access to as many training data, but it's right. not only cost efficient, it's also... Uh, it's not only data efficient, it's also cost efficient because of the kind of uh, computation costs that you have to spend to really train mm-hmm. these models from scratch. And it's also good for environment because now everybody knows yeah. about the carbon footprint of all these data centers. Yeah, I mean, if people don't, so we should we should definitely break down. So you mentioned BERT. So this is an example of a transformer architecture. So these became famous in the last few years in natural language processing. So in these kinds of situations where you're working with legal documents, you're going to want to use a natural language processing um, model. Today, almost every time you're gonna pick a deep learning model to do that, and the kind of the state of the art kind of model architecture to use are these transformer architectures of which BERT, B-E-R-T, is one of the most well-known. And so, you know, you can have, if you buy a consumer-grade graphics processing unit, um, so GPUs can dramatically speed up the training of deep learning models as opposed to just trying to train them on the CPU of a machine that you have. But on a consumer-grade GPUs, the BERT model might take up so much of the GPU's memory that you can only fit one or two training samples, one or two documents in the RAM of that GPU at any given time. And so with you know, prior to transformer models, you might have been able to fit hundreds of examples at once. And so this just kind of gives you an idea of the size of these model architectures. They're so big. And it means that the compute to train them can be huge. So not only is that expensive for you if you're training it from scratch without using one of these kind of pre-trained hugging face models, but the environmental point. So you said, you know, everybody knows, maybe not everybody in the audience does know, um, there was a really famous paper, I guess it came out almost a year ago now, but Stochastic Parrots. Yeah, I knew you were going to know about that one. Um, And that's a really, I highly recommend checking that out. It's a hugely controversial paper for reasons that I don't know if we really have the time to dig into right now, but it led to um, people leaving Google under circumstances where Google and the people leaving have different stories about how that departure happened. but uh, yeah, so this Stochastic Parrots paper, interesting for social reasons, but also it talks a lot about how these huge transformer models are bad for the environment. You are right. Like now everybody talking about carbon footprints and 
we are all concerned about global warming and environmental problems we're going to deal with for the next generations or even our generation. We are dealing with everything. Um, so, and it's, I think at least for me personally, it was a trigger because we always encourage our companies, especially in the area of machine learning, to use deep learning techniques, to use bigger models, to use uh, that they are definitely computationally heavy and intense. And it was a trigger for me to really give it more thought and really thinking about how, again, we can leverage technology to, to reduce our carbon footprint of using these models. And that's why I'm like transfer learning is very exciting for me because it can enable you to, to reuse the existing models. Also, I think compression is another one because, of course, mm. you, when you're thinking about the, the computation, there are... One is one side of it is for training. The other side is for inference and mm. hosting. So if you're hosting a bigger model, of course, you need to you need more CPU, GPU power, and it means more carbon footprint, right? So how we can also compress these models, and that's why another research area that we started to dig into with one of our, our companies, again, used to be company Chorus, uh, is around compression. It's about distillation and uh of course, like one reason is is environment and um, reduction of carbon footprint. The other one is cost because yeah. it's going to translate directly to your mm -hmm. AWS uh, <laughs> yeah, cost, right? So exactly, yeah, yeah. So and for startups, it was also about like the cost reduction. So it's just a win-win for me. Like I'm, I feel better about using these technologies because we are thinking about the reduction piece. Also, it's it's. I'm also reducing the cost for our company, especially the hosting hosting cost. Yep, um, it's one of those situations where doing what's good for the environment is aligned with what's good for the company, and so it's not hard to get buy-in. <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I guess so. Something that comes to mind for me there is when we talk about Bert and kind of smaller models that might be able to do a lot of what BERT can do, there are these kinds of smaller models. You mentioned the word distilled, and that ties in. There is a model called distill BERT, which is yeah. supposed to have a much smaller uh, compute and carbon footprint and cost footprint, um, but you can get a lot of the same results. So that's something that you could potentially look into. And you mentioned uh, at inference time, and so something that's interesting here, I don't know if you were thinking about this, but we can talk about it explicitly, is something that you can do to reduce your cost and carbon footprint at uh, inference time is quantizing your model weights. Yeah, yeah. so that instead of using really precise float precision for your model weights, you can quantize the model um, to less precise um, precision. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and that allows your models to run more quickly in production, you save costs, and um, trees sprout up all around the world uh, in thanks. <laughs> yeah, we actually tried quantization as well, and uh, we we and we ended up combining quantization and distillation for that problem, which was speech transcription. Mm -hmm. uh, and it it worked very well, I guess. And again, I encourage you to read our paper because we also publish. So uh, we we published our paper, and uh, you can find it. Uh, in Weber, I can share the link with you to share it with the podcast, Perfect. but definitely you can find the paper and learn more about uh, how we combine quantization and distillation to really not 
at the end of the day, we didn't want to compromise the performance or utility, but at the same time, we wanted to make it more cost efficient. Awesome. So, Parnas, you have been talking about such cool problems that you're tackling. They are truly at the cutting edge of AI. And you get to do this in a way that is making a big impact, typically for multiple portfolio companies, these fast-growing tech startups that are having a big impact on the industries that they're in, sounds like a pretty amazing job. So um, first of all, I noticed that you are doing some hiring. So it looks like you're basically always hiring top data scientists and machine learning engineers. So I don't know if you want to talk about those roles in particular, but what do you look for in people that you hire? Very good question. So first of all, like raw intelligence is definitely important for us. But, uh, and we are very lucky to have a very smart team. But at the same time, what drives me personally, and I guess most of the people in our team also, it's the, like they are really motivated by impact. So we never ask, oh, it's like a problem. It's, we're not going to work on this problem because it's not, it doesn't use a cool technology in it doesn't use BERT or it doesn't. So it's always about really, first of all, I guess that's the motivation piece. Like what's really drives you and is it really solving the problem or is the technology? I guess we are normally looking for people who are more passionate about solving the problem. And mm -hmm. learning and deep learning and all these cutting edge technologies are different ways you can solve the problem. But even if you can solve it rule-based, you have to be honest and you have to be transparent and say, maybe let's try the rule-based techniques or maybe let's try with log let's start with logistic creation and the next versions of the model, we can we can move on to the more advanced techniques. So that's the first one. And normally we are looking for pragmatic, practical. Ah, and uh, exactly the word I was going to use. Yeah, perfect. yeah, exactly. That's, that's like maybe like the way we, we have a very pragmatic and practical team because we are working with the startups. Maybe if you want to work for a big corporations, you have the luxury of being more passionate about technology rather than problems. But it's not the case for us. We are working with startups and we have to be very pragmatic and practical. So mm -hmm. passion for research and technology, but at the same time, be very practical and pragmatic, uh, practical and pragmatic a quick learner because we are moving from one problem to another problem, from one market to another market. You have to quickly learn and ask the why question. I think that's another uh, characteristic that I'm looking for normally when, uh, when we are thinking about hiring because you can give you, there are two types of people. Maybe the first one is just, they, go, they are given the instructions and they are given the problem and they can perfectly execute on that. There are other types of people that I guess they are also asking, why should I solve this problem? Why does it matter? How does it really help us to get to our goal? How does it improve the end customers or uh, users experience? And I think that I also like to hire people who are curious about the why. And even they can, because we, I, if I make that decision of like why, and this is a problem we have to make, we have to work on, I might make mistakes. So I really always like to to be surrounded by people that always ask this why question and challenge me and really correct me if I made the wrong assumptions. So that's another one. Engineering and coding skills is definitely important because at the end of the day, we have to deliver the code uh, and we have to deliver good quality code. And again, maybe you're working in different environment. You can work with multiple engineers and hand it off to engineers, but normally we prefer full stack, someone who can do the research and machine learning as well as like delivering good quality code. Um, 
And then the last one, but not least, is the communication skills. So um, it's really about be effective in your com- in in your communication. Be able to influence others because we often work with other da- with other data scientists, and they might have their strong opinions about why we should solve it in a in a certain ways. So it's just really about really getting comfortable challenging others, listening very well, understanding where they are coming from and what's their arguments. And if you believe they are right or wrong, just be able to to effectively get your message across. And of course, promote your work or deliver, present what you have achieved. Yeah. Uh, I love the points that you've made here. Um, I collected five big things that you look for in people you hire so that they're motivated by impact, meaning that they're pragmatic. So they're more about getting an impactful solution than necessarily just for its own sake using the most state-of-the-art technique, which makes perfect sense to me. The second thing was being a quick learner because you're constantly moving between different industries and problems, which of course in this kind of in this kind of position like Georgian where you have all these different portfolio companies, that's inevitable. I love the third one. That is my favorite, that they're comfortable challenging with asking why, including of leadership. So, you know, asking you, well, why are we doing it this way? I love that. I actually had um, almost a decade ago now, I was in job interviews with a company where they were like, let's say you're in a scenario where, so this is the, the person that would be my hiring manager says, Let's say you're in a scenario where um, I ask you to do something and you don't think it's the right way to do it. What do you do? And I'm like, well, of course, I you know try to come up with a way of explaining why I think there's another way to do it. And, and he was like, no, 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 no. Let's say the CEO comes to you and says, you must do it this way. What do you do? And I'm like, well, I, the same thing. <laughs> I'm going to try to explain why I think there's a better way. And he's like, no, sometimes you just have to do it and you can't understand why. And I mean... For me, that's that's a big red flag. That's not somebody I want to be working with. So I love that it's the opposite culture at Georgian. Um, the full stack piece makes perfect sense to me. So you, especially when you have people that are working on these, I can imagine there's scenarios where people on your team, you might have one person dedicated to one particular problem with a particular portfolio company for a few weeks. And so that person needs to be able to go all the way from model development all the way through to um, to uh, deployment. And then your final point was communication, which I also, so that is the most common um, skill that I hear when I ask this question of guests on the show, but you said something that is so obvious in that that I haven't heard with a previous guest, which is listening. So when I hear, so when people bring this up, so communication comes up, it's the number one by far trait that people look for in, in, in people they're hiring, but they always talk about verbal communication and written communication, which you did, but you're the first person to mention listening, which of course <laughs> is critical in communication. So thank you for that. I thought I, I thought about my company. I, I have that kind of analytical kind of uh, personality, but I always think about why I failed in my communication, why I failed in influencing someone. And number one reason is I didn't listen. I really mm. didn't understand where they are coming from. And I keep pushing and I keep iterating and reiterating on the similar points that I had, really without understanding what they are trying to say. Um, so that's why I was like, 
yeah, that's the main reason of my failure. So, so I have to make sure the next people that we are hiring, they are better than me, at least. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, all right. So that's really cool. I definitely encourage people to look out for those jobs on the Georgian website. Sounds like an amazing place to work. Seriously, I am jealous of that kind of scenario. Sounds like an amazing leader in you. Parinaz and the problems you're tackling, very cool. So how did you decide to become involved in computer science and machine learning in the first place? So, you know, you're now, you probably wouldn't use this kind of language yourself because you seem like a humble person, but I can say it, is that you are a leader. You are a huge leader in data science now in this role that you have as the head of machine learning and applied research at the biggest private fund in Canada. This is massive. The impact that you have is huge. How did you find your way to where you are now? What's your motivation? What's your why behind what you're doing? I think that's how, first of all, that's how my brain is wired. I love solving problems. And I, I was lucky enough to learn about coding in my high school. And I found, oh my God, that's so powerful. Like, Give me code, like programming and coding and softwares are one of the best ways to solve the problem in the current world, technology in general. And that's why I ended up studying computer science and computer engineering. But, and in, but I, at the same time, I'm a lazy person. And in third year of my in third year of my bachelor, actually, I learned about machine learning, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's so perfect for me because it can automate me." <laughs> so mm -hmm. then I don't need because you know coding is all about step by step giving the instruction, solving the problem. But machine learning is on the opposite side of uh, this spectrum. It's all about give it. It's all about mathematical opt optimization, but the sum of giving the training data and the input data and outcome data and let the model figure out how to solve the problem using the optimization. And I was like, that's really, really awesome. And I started to play with different problems in my master and then in my PhD, I moved to Canada. And I was thinking about what is the hardest problem for AI to tackle. And at that time, I thought natural language understanding mm -hmm. is the difficult, the most difficult problem. And the reason mm -hmm. is he, natural languages evolved over time and they, they evolved in a way to capture the complexity of the human brains. That's why human languages are so complex right mm -hmm. now. And I thought that's going to be the most difficult problem for AI tackle because it's basically understanding the complexity of the human brain as well. Um, that's why at that time I started to link it, to look into different types of problems that state of the art or the, one of the most common problems in, in academia was sentiment analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, what we call as a classification to positive or negative or neutral. But I thought it doesn't, it's not as meaningful for me because what might be even more impactful is one step further what we call stance classification which is mostly about you have a piece of text, you have a target of interest, and you really want to know the overall position of the, the author of piece of text towards the target of interest. And the target of interest can be a concrete entity, like a person or a product, but it can be also an abstractive 
entity, like legalization of abortion. And even I use legalization of abortion rather than anti-abortion. And then it's going to completely change the problem. So even the way I framed my target of interest is going to completely change the problem. So I found it very interesting problem. And money may be one of the most, uh, one of the closest uh, classification problems towards natural language understanding. Uh, I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm trying to, I'm going to try to say back to you what you've told me to make sure that I'm on track. So, um, so this sounds like it's now we're we're getting into your PhD research, right? Yeah. So, um, so you studied computer science in Iran. You did a bachelor's and master's there um, in computer science. You realize uh, during those degrees that you have this opportunity to be using machine learning to be figuring out how your uh, how your computer program should run without you needing to have if-else statements for everything, which actually is a quick side note. There's a brilliant article, a brilliant blog post by Andre Karpathy called Software 2.0, which um, builds a lot on that idea that, that you're describing there, Paranaz. I'm not telling you that because you're probably aware of it, but I'm letting the audience know. So it's this, this idea of how Software 1.0, we still use that as data scientists and machine learning engineers. So we still use Python to, you know, as, as most commonly as the language, as the, as the way of having our code run. But then on top of that software 1.0, we have this software 2.0 of these model weights that learn, and we don't have to explicitly program how information should flow um, through our program. And that article does a great job, uh, this uh, software 2.0 article by Andre Karpathy does a great job of kind of summarizing all the advantages of doing it that way, which of which laziness is one for sure, uh, that we could be lazier and we don't have to write as much code. Um, but so, so you become fascinated by machine learning. You come to Canada at the University of Ottawa and do a PhD in artificial intelligence and natural language processing. And your particular research, you're particularly motivated by this very hard problem of natural language understanding. So how how can we have machines that are able to replicate this extremely nuanced, complex language capacity that human brains have? Um, and so then you started to describing a specific problem. So you were talking about how, you know, uh, there's, there are some natural language classification problems that are, and I agree with you, kind of relatively unsatisfying. So you talked about sentiment analysis, so you could have a movie review, and so you pass the natural language of the movie review into your model, and the model predicts, is this a positive movie review? Did the person like it? Did they not like it? Or are they neutral? So you have these kind of three buckets. Um, but then, so then you were talking about how your research is, you know, is a lot closer to real natural language understanding. And so you're talking about, um, specifically like it, it relating to a particular identity. Um, I don't know, flesh, flesh out a bit more for me there, maybe like an example so that I can, so that I can grasp exactly yeah. what you were studying. So imagine I say, um, um, again, like maybe the example would be the, the, the like legalization of abortion versus anti-abortion. So the target of interest, the way you frame your target of interest, you end up completely, so, if I have, if I use as target of interest legalization of abortion, and then I have a piece of tweet that says, uh, 
women are not allowed. Women should not be allowed to choose uh, because it's something. It's a gift from God. Uh, then, if your target is legalization of abortion, you are against it. But if your target is anti-abortion, you are in favor of it. So it's not as easy as positive negative because positive negative doesn't make sense here anymore. It's mm-hmm. all about your position towards this target and what's the target uh, and what's the kind of relationship between this target and your opinion. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, that is definitely nuanced. It sounds like a really tricky problem and a lot closer to our real understanding of natural language. That's really cool. And so it looks from a, I've, I've looked at the names, the titles of some of your papers uh, from your academic uh, area, from your academic time, and it sounds like you know you were working on these kinds of natural language models like LSTMs, long short-term memory units, and applying those to these kinds of advanced natural language understanding problems. Yeah, definitely. At the time, RNMs or LSTMs were a state of the art. Of course, there was no BERT yeah. uh, when yeah. I did my PhD. And uh, also, I also worked for a National Research Council of Canada in our C-Lab. And then we also started thinking about what's going to be Given again the complexity of the languages, and especially like you know Noam Chomsky on the other side of the spectrum, always believe we have languages they have a structure, grammatical structure, semantic and, and syntactic structure, and how we can really leverage these structures to better understand the meaning, and that are be, at, in, at the end of the day we frame the problem as a classification problem, and how we can use, and then we started to think about how we can use the grammatical structure because most of the LSTMs at that time were like left to right or right to left sequential models. None of them were tree-based mm-hmm. or DAG-based. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, we started to, to explore uh, for more like a different types of classification problems, how we can leverage the structure of the language. And that's how we ended up publishing our papers. I was lucky to work with, a, with very good researchers and we could publish in best venues uh, and then Very we cool. use the similar i use the similar kind of uh, techniques for machine translation i joined microsoft research and i worked with the researchers mm. there to really figure out again at that time the state of the art was sequence to sequence models two rnn models and but it was left right left, right to left again we didn't leverage the structure mm-hmm. of the language so we started to think about how we can use similar like DAG structure or CD structures, uh, RNNs and LSTMs for uh, machine translation, especially, for example, nice. from Japanese to English or some, some languages that the structure right. might be even more impactful to the main. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it does seem to me like there's a huge opportunity there. So um, the vast majority of these natural language models, like we're talking about recurrent neural networks, long short term memory me- networks, even transfer models like BERT, they work in a sequential pattern, a one-dimensional way. They go from left to right, and some of them are bi-directional. They'll go both ways. They'll go left to right and right to left at the same time. But uh, so you mentioned a tree structure. So there you have like, branches. Um, so you so that's it's a non-sequential structure. And then you also mentioned DAGs, directed acyclic graphs, which can have even more, they can be, even more complex than trees. They can have all kinds of uh, direction and branching and um, anything but a loop. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so I can see how- So one point, yeah. uh, I think yeah. actually for BERT, we solve the problem. That's why we don't mm. need 
tree structure or DAG structure. Oh. Because now nice. we are randomly masking some of the tokens. So it's not like, because we, before mm. when we were dealing with RNNs, we were predicting the next word based of the previous words, whether you right. are traversing it left or right, right to left or left to right. But we, it's not the case with transformers anymore. We are just randomly masking some of these tokens. And we are trying mm. to predict that mask tokens based on all tokens around it, left or right, doesn't matter. So that's why I believe we don't see that kind of like tree structure or data structure transformers anymore because it's kind of, we already solved the problem in a different way. Cool, yeah. You know this stuff way better than me, so I'm glad that you said that. Um, <laughs> and the, the only word there I think that we should clarify for the audience is token. And so basically a token is, it's a part of speech. It could be a word or it could be a character. Um, so, to, so with your natural language model, at some point when you create your architecture, you decide, okay, I'm going to break up all of my natural language into words, um, or maybe sometimes pairs of words, so that something like New York is treated as a single token as opposed to two tokens, two separate words. Um, but yes, I, I love that you uh, you just you just taught me something, so I greatly appreciate that. Um, so we've learned a ton from you about the work that you do at Georgian, which is obviously extremely exciting. Um, we've talked about how you got into what you're doing. There's one last topic that we touched on a little that I want to get into a bit more. So we talked about um, the kind of ethics of AI with respect to the environment. But there's another topic that I know is of interest to you, which is another AI ethics topic, fairness. So You've written a blog post about this, which we're going to share in the show notes, but maybe you want to just talk a little bit about that? Definitely. Um, I think one of my core values is fairness. Um, and it's mainly because maybe I grew up back in Iran in a very sub, in like women, because of like all the problems we had women rights and suppression mainly. Uh, and I always keep thinking about how we can build a fair board and how we can have some contribution to make this board a little bit more fair, uh, mm -hmm. which is very hard problem because it's fundamentally unfair. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, but I started to work on AI and machine learning and 10 years ago, if you would have asked me, what do you think I would say these models are fair? Because it was, it's all about mathematical op optimization. It's completely mm -hmm. objective. <laughs> mass is objective and I would really mm -hmm. be so passionate about look no actually we have to automate all these humans because humans are sexist humans are racist but these models mm -hmm. these machines they can't be sexist or racist and I think it was a mistake maybe I didn't know enough uh, but now we all know we all know these models can be also sexist and racist because that's main ingredients we are using data and where are they, mm -hmm. where is data coming from Data is coming from human behaviors or human labels or human annotations. Mm -hmm. So there is no, it's almost impossible to get uh, any objective, completely objective uh, source of truth or data uh, at scale, especially at scale. Maybe you can get 10, maybe you can get 20, but we know, especially for these large models, you need millions of billions of samples and training mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. data. So definitely when the main ingredients are are sexist and racist, you can, your mathematical op op optimization, no matter what it is, depending on your objective, it can be also uh, end up to be a racist or sexist model. Um, 
And I'm so passionate because still I believe uh, we might be able, we might be able to move the needle. I'm not as optimist anymore, but still, I mean, it's encouraging for me, all this research going on in, and of course I'm not, uh, given that I have more applied uh, focus right now, I'm not actively contributing to the research, uh, but uh, this research field, but at the same time, I'm, I always try to read the the, the new papers and stay on top of that because still like we can, how we can really use technology, how we can even like um, um, debugging these models to really understand the root cause of these biases. And sometimes it's easier to solve the problem or remediate or have some remediation plan, but sometimes it's, it's harder. It might not be as straightforward, but even transparently communicating uh, the bias in your model and the blind spots of your models, um, it might be easier uh, than dealing with humans because humans they have, it's very hard. Uh, dealing with humans is the most difficult problem in the world, but um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for uh, me. Hell, should, hell is should, other people, I think is the same. <laughs> yeah, I should add for me, for me, technology and machines and, and software is definitely easier to deal with other than humans. So I still encourage, I'm still uh, hopeful that if we do more research, if we do, uh, if we have more awareness and have more demand from the end customers, from the end users of these models to, to understand exactly how they work to some extent, what they use as input, what are the potential, and of course, legal and compliance going to be uh, another aspect of it that how governments can also help to have some sort of audits uh, for these models. Um, so, so much going on and mm -hmm. uh, it's not an easy problem. I always say, please don't oversimplify the fairness problem but, because mm -hmm. I have seen it in, in, in other organizations that they simply just remove the age and uh, gender and right. maybe location from their data and they create mm -hmm. problem solved. Now we don't have access to this, to these features yeah. or attributes. So our model doesn't know. I'm like, let me give you an example. If I ask you which social media do you use the most, you might feel, okay, it doesn't really reveal my gender or ethnicity, but I can tell you if you say Pinterest, if your answer mm -hmm. is Pinterest, you mm -hmm. are more than 80% a white woman. Right. Right? So, like, it's not yeah. as simple as removing all these sensitive features from your data mm -hmm. because there are so many other attributes that they are, they have a strong correlation with those sensitive attributes. Yeah. And it can even be encoded in the way that language is used. So, even if you were able to remove all these demographic factors, you say, okay, we're not going to have Pinterest because that's too, like, like we got to get rid of that word because it's too too related to white women. Um, you could still have just the way that language is used can vary by gender or race. And so intimately tied up in natural language um, are these kind of implicit indications of sociodemographic group. And so I agree with you 100%. These are not easy problems to solve, but they are important problems to solve. And so two resources to point listeners in the direction of. So first of all, Parinaz's blog post, 
which is on the Georgian website. It's called Seven Principles of Building Fair Machine Learning Systems. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, and then we also, we did an episode on AI ethics, if you're interested in hearing more about that. So episode 449 with Ayodela Odubella uh, is focused um, entirely on that topic, if you want to learn more about it. So Parnas, this has been an extremely enjoyable experience. I've learned so much from you and had so much fun. Um, but I want to start kind of winding down the episode a little bit uh, and be mindful of your time. And so I always ask guests on the show before I let them go, do you have a book recommendation for us? Definitely. I'm a feminist. Um, and now I live in Canada and Canada is my second home and I'm a proud Canadian. So my favorite feminist, great uh, female authors, Margaret Atwood, Margaret Atwood and uh, Alice Munro. I love mm -hmm. them. I love their books. Uh, I, I wasn't a big fan of short stories, but Alice Munro completely changed my perception of short stories. Wow. And I, since pandemic, I started to read more and more of her, her books. And honestly, that was the highlight of my pandemic. Like I couldn't wait wow. for 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 my like uh, quiet time to really read more or listen to her audiobooks. Uh, definitely, these are the two uh, favorite authors, and uh, I also love novels. I love stories. So nice. So as a Canadian, I strongly support uh, your choices here. Um, we had to read a lot of Margaret Atwood in high school and uh, yeah, some, you know, deeply influential books, uh, some of which have been made into very popular series, Handmaid's Tale, for example. Um, and I love that Alice Munro recommendation. I'm, I'm often looking for a short read because Sometimes I'm like not in the mood to get deep into a novel that I know is going to take me at how slowly I read. Um, it's going to take me at least weeks to get through. I'm like, it'd be nice to have something uh, that I could just draw a line under in a couple of days. And so, yeah, short stories. I don't know how I hadn't thought of that. Alice Munro. Do you have a particular like collection of short stories by her or? All her um, books are excellent. <laughs> and she got, books. I guess, Nobel yeah. Prize for one of her books, but I can't remember exactly which of the books, but maybe you can start yeah. with that one. Nice. Yeah, I'll look that up. Sounds like I can't lose. All right. So Parinaz, you have enlightened us with so much in this episode. How can people follow you to get more? I, I think the best way to, to reach out or follow me is by Twitter, um, through Twitter. And my Twitter account is Pari, P-A-R-I-A-I-M-L. Nice. We will have that in the show notes for sure, Parinaz. Thank you, and yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. We've got a nice day here in southwestern Ontario, don't we? I hope you get to spend some of it uh, outside in the sunshine. Thank you. Yeah, the same. Enjoy the last days of summer. What an amazingly intelligent and thoughtful person Parinaz is. I learned so much from her in this episode, including on how Georgian accelerates the impact of the tech startups in their investment portfolio by providing free collaborative resources for scoping out and delivering data science projects. We talked about how transfer learning can enable powerful models to be trained while limiting financial and environmental impact, with a special shout out to Hugging Face for making transfer learning with massive state-of-the-art transformer-based models of natural language like BERT relatively straightforward. 
We talked about the attributes Parinaz looks for in the data scientists and machine learning engineers she hires, specifically pragmatism, communication, quick learning, being comfortable challenging leadership, and being full stack from model creation through to deployment. And we talked about how math is objective, but the large scale training data we use to train models, including natural language models, is subjective and contains biases that are not simple to mitigate. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Parinaz's Twitter profile, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 509. That's superdatascience.com slash 509. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. To support the Super Data Science company that kindly funds the management, editing, and production of this podcast without any annoying third-party ads, you could consider creating a free login to their learning platform at superdatascience.com or consider buying a usually pretty darn cheap Udemy course published by Ligency, a super data science affiliate, such as my own Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course. All right, all right. Thanks to Ivana, Jaime, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another awesome episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.